following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning. So good to see everyone here, and this room is slowly getting back to normal and, and filling up, which is awesome to see. Um, you know, a couple months ago, uh, when Pastor Steve got together with the pastoral staff, and he, we were going over the 2021 preaching calendar, and um, he informed the, you know, the staff when and what he would like each of us to preach on from the Bible Project sermon series. And I'll be honest, when I saw that I was assigned the topic of sin, I began to sin. <laughs> My heart was grumbling, um, bad attitude, not excited, despite my expertise on this particular topic. Um, you know, we've covered some great themes over this, this series, the image of God, uh, the gospel, um, justice and generosity more recently. And I thought, man, I'd, I think I'd rather preach on any of these other topics rather than sin. Because let's be honest, who really enjoys coming to church and hearing a message on sin, Right? If you've grown up in the church, um, you know, and heard a message on sin, it, it probably always sounds something like, don't sin, right? Or stop sinning. Or let me warn you about the consequences of sin. As tempting as that is to preach a message like that today, I'm, I'm not going to preach on sin, at least in that way. You know, as, as I've been preparing this message, uh, I'm so thankful because uh, it's actually forced me into a deeper exploration of this topic. And it's actually a very important topic uh, because our understanding of sin is fundamental to our understanding of the gospel, right? Without acknowledgement of sin, without recognizing the reality of sin in our lives and in this world, there is no gospel. And not just the gospel, but discipleship, how we grow in Christ, right? How we understand our purpose in life how we walk by the Spirit. All of these things are rooted in a proper biblical understanding of sin. And I think if we get this wrong, then it has a way of distorting our entire Christian worldview, right? How we see God, how we see ourselves, how we see one another, even our purpose on earth. And I realize this topic of sin ties into every other message already given in the Bible Project series. And so as we march through um, Lent and towards Easter, you know, I hope these final messages that you will hear uh, will help you to see how all of these, these grand themes kind of come together. And I hope that it will help us just not just rethink um, our faith and what it represents, but how we live it out, how we practice it, how we exercise faith. So let me pray before we begin. Father, we thank you so much for this time and this place in which you've gathered us in your wisdom. And... We confess to you, Lord, that sin is a real struggle in our lives. And we thank you for your word, which speaks to it and to the reality of, of who we are and the world that we live in. And not just speaks to it, provides a solution in and through your son. And so, God, awaken our, our hearts, open up our minds to receive what you have to say to us. To understand, Lord, what it is that you want us to understand about sin. For our good and for your glory, we pray all these things. Amen. 
You know, I, I realized this past week that today, this Sunday, actually marks the one-year mark from our last normal service in this room when this whole sanctuary was filled. It was March 8th, 2020. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to believe it's been a whole year already. And I think the last 12 months have been very humbling for all of us, not just because it's been a difficult year, but I think with all the internal and external pressures that we've been facing, uh, it's just exposed, I think, how sinful we are, right? And not just that, how sinful this world is that we live in. You know, being in lockdown, uh, having our, our kids struggle with online schooling, the stress of trying to keep our loved ones healthy, especially our parents in this pandemic, trying to stay financially afloat in a suddenly unpredictable world. I think all of these things has just brought out the worst in us. And, you know, even watching the horrors of what has happened this, this past summer and this, this last year with, with George Floyd and others, uh, seeing greed and selfishness just at Costco <laughs> during this pandemic, it's just seeing the last presidential election. I think, again, it's just revealed how nasty, how divisive, how hateful and unforgiving we can be as a people. And I'm sure most of you have heard about, you know, what has come out recently uh, about the late Ravi Zacharias, who was a world-renowned Christian apologist, uh, leader, someone that I actually deeply respected. And, you know, it was so hard for me to read these accounts of just how deeply this man was enslaved by his own sin and how he took advantage of so many women and the great lengths that he went to to hide it even to his grave, unrepentant. And it's so hard, isn't it, to have hope over sin when you hear stories like that, people that you look up to, seemingly godly people that we respect, who dedicate their entire lives to the gospel, and yet they don't seem to have any power even over their own sin. Now, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we experience incomplete victory over sin is because we have an incomplete understanding of sin. There's so much that can be said about sin, but today I want to try to redefine or at least challenge the way that you think about it and give you a more complete definition of sin. I want to present what I believe is a more biblical, fuller picture of sin, which I hope will free you to live the life of obedience that God desires. So let me start with this basic question. How would you define sin? How would you define sin? Uh, most of my childhood, from uh, kindergarten through sixth grade, um, I attended a Christian school in a small town in Alton, Illinois, just across the river in Saint, near St. Louis, called Mississippi Valley Christian School. That's a picture of me when I was like kindergarten and like fifth grade. Um, I know, I, I was kind of a, a little nerd. But, you know, this was a, overall, you know, the school was a good experience. I, I have fond memories largely of it. Um, but it was a, an ultra-conservative Southern Baptist school. Very strict code of conduct. Um, we weren't allowed to curse, of course. We weren't allowed, uh, uh, you know, to misbehave, disrespect. There was a dress code. There was even a hair code. And for boys... If your hair touched your ear or your collar, the principal could call you into his office and literally cut your hair in his office because it was a violation of their code of conduct. 
And I remember I was, when I was six years old, I was in six, first grade, and it was in the middle of art, art time. We were doing drawings, and I was sitting on a small desk with my best friend, Eric Cha, who was like the only other Asian in this entire school. And we were, we were just in this happy mood, you know, as we're drawing and coloring. And then he goes, pee. And I go, poo. And he goes, pee. And I go, poo. And we just started going back and forth, pee, poo, pee, pee, poo. And we were like, make this song. It was called Pee, Pee, Poo. And our teacher was walking by. She's like, what did you say? And before we knew it, we're in the principal's office. We're six years old. And the principal pulls out this big green paddle. It looks kind of like that paddle, but it was green. And it was green because those that was, that were school colors, right, Mississippi Valley. And I got swatted like a dozen times on my bum bum because I said pee-poo. And so, you know, I, I learned at a very young age that a good Christian keeps the rules. And sinners or rule breakers, they get the green paddle, right? <laughs> so don't ever say pee or poo. Certainly don't write a song about it and sing it out in class. And that's what being a Christian is. And, you know, I think most of us would define sin in a very similar way, you know, as simply a violation of God's rules or commandments. Or maybe more generally, we see sin as a failure to meet God's righteous standard. And I can actually understand why this is, because this is what most of us are taught if we've grown up in the church, isn't it? You know, early on, we are directed to verses like Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're taught that because of our sin, we all fail to meet God's holy standard. And we're taught to be good because Matthew 5, 48 says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we're instructed to obey and be sinless like God, or at least as much as we can, right? And, you know, even as the, the video referred to, the way that we define the word sin in the Bible is often defined as missing the mark. And it evokes this image, doesn't it? It's like we have failed to hit the target. We have failed to achieve God's righteous standard. We have fallen short of his perfection, his holiness. And I want to say this, you know, while on some level this is true, I believe this is actually a, a very incomplete definition of sin. And it fails to capture what the Bible is actually trying to teach us about our condition. And not just our condition, but our calling. And I think when we define sin as falling short of God's standard or missing the target, it keeps sin inside this very moralistic framework. It confines it into just violating a set of rules. And I think this has a very unhealthy way of bringing all of the energy and the focus of fighting sin on me, right? And the Christian life begins to resemble sin management. And the way out is self-discipline. And I think defining sin as disobeying rules can also lead us into this very sterilized view of sin where the gospel is only seen in a judicial or a legal framework. Where the answer to my sin is assuming God's righteousness in Christ so that I can escape God's wrath or avoid his final judgment. And while this is theologically true in some sense, I think, you know, most of us cannot 
think of sin in that way because it, not most of us, we should not think of sin in that way. It cannot be the only way that we view sin. Because if, if this is how we think about sin, I think most of us will find ourselves in this strange place, right, where, you know, you beat up everyone around you and you self-righteously condemn them when you keep the rules. Or you just beat yourself up mercilessly when you find yourself breaking those rules. And both are wrong. And you'll begin to see sin in a very binary way, and not just sin, but the world, as two categories of people. You know, you're either a rule breaker or you're a rule follower. You know, I think we see this kind of today with, with mask mandates, right, in this pandemic. It's like all the rule followers are like, why aren't you wearing a mask? Get that mask over your nose, you murderer. <laughs> and then you have the rule breakers, and they're like, I ain't need no mask. <laughs> this is America, land of the free. And, you know, I think people just begin to see everyone as like rule followers, rule breakers, and just binary. And not just that, we become bipolar ourselves. How we see God, how we see ourselves, it just vacillates day after day. And it's based on our success in that day on whether we observed God's commands or not. And the Christian walk feels like a roller coaster. And that's not a good place to be. Nor is it what I believe God wants us for us or desires for us. You know, in Luke 15, we're told that all the tax collectors and sinners are gathering around Jesus to hear him teach. And these are all the rule breakers. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are there too. And they're muttering to themselves, this man, he, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And these are the rule followers, right? And it's in front of these two groups that Jesus teaches them about the, prodig the parable of the prodigal son. And if you think about it, the two characters in the story are made up of a rule breaker and a rule follower. We have a rule breaker in the younger son who has this epiphany of his sin, and he's filled with incredible shame. And you have a rule follower in the older brother whose righteous indignation makes him so angry that it's impossible for him to celebrate his brother's return home. You know, if this parable teaches us anything, I think it is that God is not nearly as interested in the rules as we are or even as, we, as much as we think he should be. He's far more interested in us. His desire is simply that his children return to him, to come home into his arms. And if you're a rule follower, this parable was actually designed to make you feel uncomfortable. Because it's easier to relate to God on a legal level when you think you've done your part. But we need to rethink sin in the same way that Jesus challenged the rule followers of his day to rethink sin. The Hebrew word for sin, kata, and the Greek form of it, hamartia, is often translated as to miss the mark, as we've already said. But I appreciate the way the video actually describes it. If you notice, it doesn't say sin is missing the mark. It says, rather, sin is missing a goal, which is another way to translate it. And later on in the video, sin is described as a failure to fulfill a goal. 
And this, this is an important nuance because sin is not just about missing the mark of God's righteous standard or breaking his rules. It's actually about failing to fulfill God's created purpose for us as his children. So when we sin, it's not just about doing the wrong thing or not doing the right thing. It's ultimately about a failure to fulfill God's purpose or calling in your life. And what is that purpose? In his book, The Day the Revolution Began, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, The normal Greek word for sin, namely hamartia, means missing the mark, shooting at a target and failing to hit it. This is subtly but importantly different from being given a long and fussy list of things that you must and mustn't do and failing to observe them all. In the story the Bible is telling, humans were created for a purpose. And Israel was called for a purpose. And the purpose was simply, not simply to keep the rules, or to be with God, or to go to heaven. As you might suppose from innumerable books or sermons and hymns and prayers, humans were made to be image bearers to reflect the praises of creation back to the Creator and to reflect the Creator's wise and loving stewardship into the world. Well, what Wright is saying is that <clears throat> ultimately sin is not a failure to keep God's rules. It is a failure to fulfill God's purpose for you and through you. As the crown of God's creation, we were uniquely created by God to reflect the image of God and sin is not just missing the mark of his righteous standard. Sin is failing to fulfill God's created purpose in reflecting his glory as his image bearers. If you think about sin in these terms, you begin to see verses about sin in the Bible differently, right? I think it actually carries more meaning. For example, let's go to Romans 3.23, which we looked at earlier. For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. You see, we all have sinned, and by sinning, we have not only failed to meet his uh, righteous standard, but we have fallen woefully short of reflecting the glory of God as his image bearers. And so if I could just add one word, my own word, for all have sinned and fall short of reflecting the glory of God. It reads a little bit differently, doesn't it? In contrast, Jesus did not fail. Jesus did not fall short in this way, does he? Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So while we in our sin fall short of displaying God's glory, Jesus expressed the fullness of God's glory. Again, N.T. Wright says this, humans are made to worship the God who created them in his own image, and so to be sustained and renewed in that image-bearing capacity. Like many scholars today, I understand the idea of the image, as in Genesis 1, 26-28, to mean that humans are designed to function like angled mirrors. We are created in order to reflect the worship of all creation back to the Creator, and by that same means to reflect the wise sovereignty of the Creator into the world. Human beings worshiping their Creator were thus intended, the intended key 
to the proper flourishing of the world. You see, obeying God's command is not just about adhering to God's rules. It's about bringing about his renewal, his restoration over his fallen creation by shining the fullness of God's glory in it. Sin at its root is not, is a renouncing. It's a renouncing of a God-given responsibility to become more like him in our worship of him and to reflect his glory to the blessing of all nations over his creation. So how do we do this? How do we fulfill this created purpose? You know, there's actually a number of ways in which I believe we're called to bring about the renewal and restoration of the world through the way that we reflect God's image in it. But I want to focus on one of the most profound ways that I believe God calls us to this. I've already hinted at it, and it's found in the life of Christ, who embodied the glory of God as the Son of God, like no other. The Apostle John, Jesus' closest friend, says this about Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, no one resembled God the Father more than God the Son. And while we in our sin have fallen short of reflecting God's glory, Jesus, living a sinless life, in the fullness of grace and truth, reflected the fullness of God's glory in this world. Here's the thing. You know, the rule followers of Jesus' day clearly did not think that he was sinless. And Jesus didn't just annoy the rule followers of his day. He enraged them. The scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they all despised him. Their reputations and their livelihoods were built around this strict observance of not just the Ten Commandments, but the sum total of the entire Torah. That is 16, 613 laws found in the books of Moses, which they obeyed fastidiously. And these laws dealt with everything from all the nuances of observing the Sabbath to proper food preparation and how to define what is clean and who is unclean. And they followed all of these to a T and defined sin and sinners based on who kept these rules and who didn't keep these rules. And it's in this context that Jesus and his disciples comes along and, they're, and he and his disciples are, are subverting everything that these guys stood for. You know, they're, they're picking grains from the fields on the Sabbath, and they're eating it. And they catch Jesus and his disciples in the act. Now, you could just imagine, like, in your mind's eye, like, they're hiding in this tall grass, and they pop out like, you ate that grain! <laughs> and, you know, that's the way they were. They, 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 on many occasions, would find Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And it, I felt, you know, honestly, it's like Jesus intended to, like, sometimes I felt like he was just saving the miracles for the Sabbath. And he would do it in the temple, like right in their faces. And they're like, what are you doing? You can't do that. I know this guy's been blind like his whole life, but you should have done this miracle yesterday, not on the Sabbath. That's how they operated. And, and Jesus is attending parties with sinners, and he's eating good food, and he's turning water into wine, and instead of fasting. And they're like, who is this guy? He's leading everyone astray. He needs to die. And they not only try to catch Jesus breaking the law, they're always trying to trap Jesus with his interpretations of the law. And they're constantly peppering him with all these loaded questions. Matthew 22 
says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, and he tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And this is a remarkable response. Jesus sums up all of their laws with these two statements. And he's basically saying, hey, you know, you guys who worship 613 laws more than you worship God. Let me make it really simple for you. Because you seem to have missed the point. All of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, not just the books of Moses, is summed up in these two commands. Love God with all that you are. And love one another as much as you love yourselves. And Jesus blows up their entire worldview on sin, and he basically tell them, tells them, you're so focused on the rules and obeying the rules that you're clueless. You've missed the point for why God gave us these laws. You don't reflect God. You don't show us his heart. You think I'm leading them astray. You are the blind leading the blind. And Jesus has no interest in obeying the commandments the way these guys are observing it. And he calls them hypocrites, whitewashed tombs who look good on the inside, but outside they're, I'm sorry, outside they look good, but on the inside they're dead and they're rotting. And their hypocrisy is exposed by Jesus. How? In the ways that they treat their fellow man. See, they, they got it all right this way, right? One of the first places that God looks for proof that we love him is in the way that we love one another. And you see this over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is why Paul says in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I want you to contrast Jesus' kind of a, apparent aloofness with, the, all the, with all the laws that the rule followers observed with the great lengths that he goes to to demonstrate a radical love to the people around him. He has great compassion for all, and he's constantly giving of himself to meet their needs, whether it's their physical hunger, their emotional distress, whether it's healing their broken bodies or setting them free from spiritual bondage. But even more than the miracles, look at how he treats those whom the world has forgotten or forsaken. The lepers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the poor, the sinners. It's the rule breakers. And Jesus, Jesus shows what it is to be in obedience and actually be in a perfect relationship with the Father. And it's not by fastidiously observing his commands and making it all about that, but it's about being in constant communion with God. Jesus showed us that loving the Father is not just a command or even a concept, but it's a living, breathing, daily reality in his life. And it's out of that love that Jesus pours himself out to others and he calls others to love as he loves, a love that is clearly set apart 
from the way that the world loves. Luke chapter 6 says this, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those who, whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to those from whom they will be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And get this, it says, and you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful. Like who? Just as your Father is merciful. You know, Jesus makes it very clear. He's not asking us to weigh the love the way that the world loves or the way that sinners love. This cheap, transactional, self-serving kind of love. He's asking us to love in the same way that God loves us. And when we love like that, we are being like our Father in heaven. We will be seen, as Luke says, as children of the Most High. Jesus himself demonstrates and demands a radical, self-giving love from his followers. And Matthew the most famous tax collector of all time and sinner, adds more color to this when he gives us Jesus' words in Matthew 5. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Now, not even the tax collector is doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. And here's what he says. He says, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Remember that verse? Jesus says, when you love one another in this way, you are being like God. You are being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I think this is an often misunderstood verse. I'm not saying perfect as, in, as if we never sin. But the Greek word for perfect here, teleos, is an interesting word. I know many of you may know that the word perfect is also translated as complete, right? But I think even that single word definition is incomplete, right? If you look up this word, teleos, or perfect, in the Bible dictionary, you'll find that it means complete in the sense of attaining an end or purpose or fulfillment of reaching a goal. Do you see how this comes full circle now? When you understand that in God's eyes, sin is failing to achieve his design goal or his purpose for us, then it makes sense that when Jesus is telling us to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. He's not saying follow the rules and be like God. He's saying fulfill your teleos. Attain the goal that God has created you for. Resemble your Father, the God Most High, as His child. 
And how do we do that? He says, follow me. Follow me. By loving as I love, by forgiving as I forgive, by giving as I give, by doing this, you are not falling short of the God's glory. You are putting it on full display. And by doing this, you are restoring and renewing the world as God intended through you as his image bearers. You know, it's, I don't know about you, but it, it's actually very freeing for me to know that God sees sin very differently from the way that we tend to see it. But this is also a very hard message, isn't it? Because when you think about it, God is demanding something from us that seems impossible. How do I love someone who has hurt me and who continues to hurt me? How do I give to someone who continues to take from me? How do I forgive someone who has wounded me and doesn't even seek forgiveness? You know, in some ways, it's easier to relate to God based on a checklist of rules. You know, I go to church every Sunday. I risk my life and come to in-person services because I love God. I tithe faithfully. I read my Bible daily. I fast occasionally. Look at what I gave up for Lent. I don't swear. I don't watch R-rated movies. I have mastered all the rules, God. I mastered all these rules. But Jesus flips our notion of sin and rules just like he flipped the tables of the money changers in the temple. And he asks, have you really obeyed me? Do you really understand what these rules are about? Now, I was blessed by the study and the message on Philemon a few weeks ago because I was struck by how we all find ourselves in each of these different positions in life, whether it's Philemon or Onesimus or Paul, and sometimes it's a different role in our different circles of, of friendships and relationships. And, you know, sometimes we're in the role of Philemon, where we have been unequivocally wronged by someone, even betrayed. And they've taken something from us, and they've violated a trust. And like Philemon, we all have these relationships in our lives, right, where we feel like we've been wronged, and we have a right to cut off that relationship. Maybe even seek retribution. And the world agrees, and it says, yeah, you do. Go get what's yours. And sometimes we find ourselves in the role of Onesimus, where we've done something wrong, or we've wounded someone profoundly, and we are the ones that are in need of forgiveness. But we're too proud, or we're too afraid to ask for it. Or we find ourselves in the role of Paul, standing in the midst of a broken relationship between two people that we care about. Will I stand in the gap and be the peacemaker and bring God's restorative power into a very broken situation? Am I willing to risk my own friendship with the good friend and put it on the line by asking him to do something that goes totally against his flesh and something that the world would not even understand? And these are, this is a bold request, right? This is do good to those who hate you. This is bless those who curse you. This is pray for those who mistreat you. This is real life, real costs, real people. And I think that's why that little book is in there. It's giving us an example in no uncertain terms. This is, this is the gospel. This is the challenge. This is what the gospel is asking, asking you of you. 
And what would you do? Whether we find ourselves in the position of a Philemon, an Onesimus, or a Paul, where you have the faith to exercise or to receive or to intervene with a radical, self-giving love, the love that Christ has called us to, will you bear his image and reflect his glory as you are called and as you were created to do? As a new creation in Christ, will you do your small part in bringing the restorative power of the gospel into the broken world that you live in, renewing it as God intended? And I want to close with uh, a personal testimony. Um, <clears throat> you know, recently I experienced the challenge of broken relationships and sin in my own life. And... Let me just tell you, if you ever go into ministry, just know that anything that God wants you to preach on or teach on, he's going to first ask you to deal with in your own heart. <laughs> it's the worst part of this job. But, um, you know, last week a good friend reached out to me, and out of the blue, um, he reached out because I was, I was like an onesimus to him. He shared that he was hurt by something that I did. And I was caught off guard. And honestly my first reaction was to get a bit defensive. And by the grace of God, I stopped myself. And I, and I didn't lawyer up like I usually do. And instead, I acknowledged my sin. And I confessed it. And I asked him for his forgiveness. And God immediately brought healing into something that was honestly small before it became something big. And I was grateful that my friend had the courage to do that, to bring that up. And about two weeks ago, in another friendship, I played the role of Philemon. Not that I was unilaterally wronged, like Philemon was, but similar in the way that it was a situation where I had been harboring a deep wound from someone that I had been hurt by, which I had carried for a long, long time. And I had put up a wall and I had a thousand excuses and why I didn't feel like it was the right time to seek reconciliation and to forgive him and to seek forgiveness myself. And I actually realized this, this, is, this was actually why I was so resistant to preaching on this message of sin because I felt like the Lord was actually asking me to deal with this sin in my life. And I didn't want to deal with it. I felt like a hypocrite. But about two weeks ago, someone had the courage to play the role of Paul. And he noticed that something was off between us, and he asked us to talk about it, how we may have hurt one another. And so the three of us sat down, and we did that. And at the time, I was like, I really don't want to do this right now. <laughs> this is really awkward. I don't have the time for this. i got to prepare a message on sin soon. But God brought incredible healing into my heart. And we were able to reconcile and express our love and care for one another. And I'm grateful. And you should be grateful too because you'd probably be hearing a very different sermon on sin today, a very judgmental sermon on sin. And, you know, reconciliation, love, it, it isn't always instantaneous. It's a process. It's a battle. And I'll be honest, you know, even since then, I find myself from time to time in moments struggling to believe 
the best in this person, struggling to give the benefit of a doubt at times. And yet, in those moments, I sense the Holy Spirit speaking to me, just Peter. Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love believes all things. Love endures all things. What do the horizontal relationships in your life look like at this moment? These are often a far more accurate indicator of our obedience and a far better exposure of our sin in this world. Is your life filled with broken relationships or people that you have shunned or given up on? Right now, in this moment, who has God called you to show mercy towards that you feel wronged by? Who is God asking you to bless that, that has cursed you or to do good to someone who has mistreated you? Or maybe God is asking you to be a peacemaker like Paul. Can you forgive a family member or a spouse for what he or she has said or done to you? even if it's wounded you deeply? Can you be merciful to your children who are struggling to live up to your expectations as a parent? Can you continue to be generous with a friend who always seems to need things from you and only take, take, take from you? Can you seek the best for a coworker who has used you to get ahead or an employee who is not pulling his weight? Can you bless and not curse a boss who mistreats you? God has created you for a purpose. Will you obey his call to love him and one another and bear his image and bring his power into your world?